Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join us to share their stories, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their losses, and their life. But maybe more importantly, you're going to have some real ideas, maybe a shift in your mindset, and specific actions to apply in your own life. Before we get started today, you ought to be checking us out online. If you don't already, cruise over there right now. I am always checking people out online. It's a great way to learn more about their stories. So visit us at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. One more time, it's JohnO'LearyInspires.com. We have our blogs and our vlogs, previous podcasts. You got the book On Fire. You can learn more about booking us as speakers at your conferences and events. So John O'Leary Inspires.com. At a recent speaking engagement, I had the opportunity to sit in the room on purpose and hear the story of someone that I've always been enamored by and been inspired by from afar. I didn't know this leader all that well, but I knew of her. I knew of her story. I knew of her business. I knew a little bit of all she'd overcome. But to sit in a room with hundreds of others and to hear her share this story, it blew me away. By the end of her conversation I had and still have in front of me today, five pages of notes from her story, from her inspiration, from her losses, from her life. And it's an incredible story. It's one that you're going to want to hear today because I have the honor of bringing on my newest friend and yours. Her name is Sue McCollum. So my friends, as Sue gets ready to take a seat next to us, I invite you to open up your journals, open up your minds and your hearts, grab a pen and get ready for a wild ride because sometimes in life, things don't go the way you have planned. That's the story today. You're going to enjoy deeply. So get ready. Buckle up. Here we go. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast, my friend, Sue McCollum. Sue, welcome to Live Inspired. Well, thank you. That was uh, quite the introduction. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, but don't we all have to live inspired, no matter what happens to any of us? We do. That's and I th- our goal. I think we all have stories, just frequently not the story we're telling the world. And, and you shared a remarkable story. And in the introductions, before we even started recording, Sue, I said, hey, how would you like me to introduce you? And you gave this awesome answer because you you have all these awesome job titles, but that's not what you led with. Do you remember what what, what you shared? I think I said you can introduce me um, as the CEO of Major Brands Yes, because that's what I do today, but it's not really who I am. I've done so many different things, and uh, we're all just kind of um, a sum of all our experiences. So today that leads with CEO of Major Brands, but that just defines what I'm doing today, but not really who I am or who any one of us are. For those who have never heard major brands, give us a a snapshot of what major brands means. So major brands is a wholesale wine, spirits, and beer distributorship. It's it's a company that's a vestige of prohibition, if you will, and the three-tier system and how alcohol is sold today. So if you remember, alcohol was legal, then it was illegal, And then there was the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition and said, hey, we're going to make it legal again, 
but it's up to the states, and the states get to decide how they want to sell it. So the state of Missouri, like many other states, have three tiers. There's suppliers, there's distributors, and there's retailers. We're the distributors. We have a license to sell alcohol throughout the state of Missouri. We sell it to the people. If you enjoy alcohol, you buy it from. Mm -hmm. So we sell it to the grocery store, the gas station, the bar, the restaurant, the country club. And we sell great brands from great bourbon brands like Maker's Mark and Knob Creek to absolute vodka to local craft beers such as Four Hands and Urban Chestnut. We sell wine from... Opus One to St. James. We really uh, run the gamut in what mm-hmm. we sell. We uh, believe firmly that the license to sell alcohol is a privilege, and as such, we have to be involved in our communities. We sell it and promote it responsibly. We're part regulator, which people don't always know, so we check to make sure every retail license account has a li- you know has the license to buy. Mm. We ensure that excise taxes are collected, so we do a lot of things. But mostly, people think of us as the person who who bought the alcohol from the supplier and sold it to the retailer. When you're not doing that work, wh- what do you do for fun? What, what do you do outside of work? <laughs> well. You know what? My my get part of my job is to be able to have fun, so that's a wonderful thing. Um, and part of my job is really getting involved in the community, which I love, which is something I did before I became CEO of Major Brands. So so much of what we do here really embodies what we do in life. So if I'm I'm not you know enjoying um, one of my beverages responsibly or eating at one of our great restaurants in Missouri or um, doing other things, I am probably sitting on my couch or pacing the room watching the Buffalo Bills on TV because <laughs> I am a huge Bills fan. I love watching sports. Um, I like to travel. Um, but most Sundays in the fall, I'll be in front of a television somewhere uh, making sure I can watch the Buffalo Bills play whomever they're playing that day. Well, you live and work and raise kids in Missouri, but you have a passion for Buffalo. I'm assuming it's not because uh, you grew up in St. Louis. Why don't we, why don't we back the train way up all the way until childhood, Sue. Where, where were you born and what was growing up like for you? I was born in Buffalo, New York, um, and I'm proud of it. Buffalo is a great place. It's a defining place for me. I believe all of us, first of all, I think everyone has a story. We all have a story. Maybe not everyone knows our story, but we all have a story. And, you know, mine begins in Buffalo, but, I, but it really begins, and I, and I think for many of us, where we grew up, and how we grow up become defining places for us. They define how we approach challenges. They define how we approach family. They define all kinds of things. And I would tell you, I think growing up in Buffalo, New York, really defined me as a person, also helped me define how I face challenges. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I grew up a long time ago, and I like to tell my kids <laughs> the story that I sometimes walk to school both ways uphill. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. Because I did walk to school, and the snow, when I, when I left for school, there might be a hill. But when I came back, there might be another hill because it snowed so much. So we have stories of the snow reaching the eaves of the roof, climbing out my aunt's window, second-story window, bringing sleds up there. She wasn't home at the time. And sliding off the garage roof. Are are these true stories? Are these exaggerated over time? Oh, this is a true story. In fact, I have a photo of it, of us on the roof sledding down. Because, I mean, it was a record snowfall. It's not like that every day. Right, right. Um, But the funny thing about growing up in Buffalo for for me is, first of all, we're Bills fans. And um, 
first and foremost, you know, we see <laughs> the, the pride in that, the pride of loyalty, right? You know, we've not been, we had four great years, and we believe it was a dynasty because we went to the Super Bowl four straight years in a row. Yes. Unfortunately, we lost four years in a row. But we don't define ourselves by the loss. We define ourselves by the fact that we could get there over and over again, and that takes resilience. But growing up in Buffalo, when you walk out the door, I remember my dad missing only one day of work ever because it snowed, and that was the blizzard of 77 where schools were closed for 10 days. I mean, there was snow on the, on the car. You had a long driveway. We shoveled it. The minute you finished shoveling, the plow came, dumped a bunch yes. of that icy, crusty snow, and you shoveled it again. But you never really thought about shoveling it. You didn't think you shouldn't have to shovel it. You just knew that if you wanted to get out of the driveway, you shoveled the snow. And you expected it to snow. You didn't expect it to be sunny and warm every day. So it's a funny thing when you walk out the door expecting snow and expecting to shovel, you really appreciate that sunny day. You appreciate the day you, it isn't snowing or you're shoveling. So I think it defines a resilience. Yes. It defines a kind of pride. I also remember um, my dad and, and, and the issue of character. And someone once asked me, well, what does character mean to you when you say you want I have two sons. You want to raise your sons to be people of character. I said, I remember, you know, driving in the car with my dad and we drive down Main Street and it, it snowed more then. Um, and you, the snow didn't keep you from doing anything. You know, you just kept doing what you did. But if the guy in front of you got stuck, you simply, it was just this sort of matter of fact, yes. right? There was no discussion. I'd get out of the car, you know, my dad, or my dad might say, hey, stay in the car. I'm going to put it, you know, park yeah. it and I'm going to go help this guy out, right? So he'd get out of the car, he'd push the guy in front of him, he'd get back in the car, and he'd drive away. It was that understanding that that's what you do for someone. You didn't have to talk about it. You didn't have to, the guy didn't have to ask you for help. You just knew that's what you needed to do. And I think for me, Buffalo was that place that it was authentic. It was down to earth. You know, everyone looks the same in a down jacket. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think that's been a defining place for me. Wow, that's and a that's a deep thought, there. by the way. Everyone looks the same in a down jacket. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell, tell me, you, you said that for a reason. Tell me what that even means to you today. Well, I think that it's not a pretentious place. Because uh, I, I grew up in Buffalo, and then I went to school and lived in Washington, D.C. for a while, and then I ended up in St. Louis for the longest time of any. But I think that, you know, pretension, you know, there are equalizers in life. I think challenges hmm. become equalizers, right? Um, tragedy become equalizers. Uh, but, but also the fact that in Buffalo, you know, what mattered is you all shared this one thing. It got really cold out. And so you better wear the warmest jacket you have, not the one that looked the best on you. Right, right. You, you brought so up I your... think that's what I mean. It's hard to be pretentious when you're wearing a down jacket all the time. You brought up your father twice. You talked about how he, he drove around helping people out. That was one thing. He also only missed one day of work ever due to snow. Talk about your dad a little bit. What, what, what was he like growing up and what did you learn from your father? Oh, my dad was a very kind man and a smart man. And so he grew up in Buffalo uh, and at a time when no one was going to college. You know, everyone went and worked for steel mill or entered a union or, and that's what he planned to do. Except his mom became ill when he was in high school and died of cancer while he was in high school. And she asked him 
the one thing to do. She wanted him to be an engineer, and she wanted him to go to college. So my dad went to school. He worked his way to get through school. He started in a vocational high school, had to switch, had to go to, ended up at the University of Buffalo. Um, he worked a couple of jobs, would fix cars that were made of nothing, you know what I mean, to keep being able to go to school to work. And he finished his degree because some members of the University of Buffalo Alumni Association essentially paid his last $100 to get through school, or that's the story he told. So mm-hmm. my dad, but he was the kindest, nicest man. He was incredibly humble. He ended up having two patents, but he pretty much worked for the same company in Buffalo his whole life. Um, and he was just someone who went to work every day, did a good job. His family was incredibly important to him, and he was there. I mean, during that one snowstorm we were talking about, our neighbor's house, the siding was blowing off, and he got on a ladder and nailed it back in. Um, he was just a good guy. Your good guys normally have partners in crime. Talk about your mom. My mom was, um, was very funny um, and very engaging. She enjoyed... Uh, um, family and friends. Uh, she um, loved to tell a story. She was a great storyteller. Some of the stories she told, we knew weren't true, but we liked to listen to them anyway, <laughs> about how during the Depression they couldn't afford a Christmas tree. So they took a broom and they drilled holes in it, and they cut a broom handle, I should say, drilled holes in it. Then they went around and cut, like, you know, pine tree limbs yes. and stuck them into the holes and that's how they created their Christmas Merry tree. Christmas. Kids, we were like, wow, you know, that must have been really hard. And then we're, we would talk to our aunts and they'd be like, uh, that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> sure, t- times were rough, but never that rough. Um, so that was my mom. She was, she loved to party. She, she loved to be with her family and, and uh, she had a great sense of humor. You mentioned DC. What, what brought you to Washington? So I went to school in um, Washington, D.C. I wanted to be a sportscaster because when you love the Buffalo yes. Bills, what would be the perfect job? Of course. To be a sportscaster. So I studied broadcast journalism and economics and um, uh, ended up going to school in D.C. And my first job was producing NFL football games for the radio and public affairs program oh. programming for the radio. So uh, I was, you know, lucky. I also, like my dad, had to work my way through college. So I worked any number of jobs, you name it, I did it. From scooping ice cream at Friendly Ice Cream in Buffalo, New York, where I was their employee of the Western New York Employee of the Year. Wow, Sue McCollum. To this day, to this day, I got $100, which in 1978 was, or 79 was a lot of money. Legit money. money. Um, and a silver dollar award, which I still have on my desk. Um, but anyway, did a lot of things in D.C. and ended up going on to get my graduate degree um, at American University where I went to, to undergrad. I got my MBA because I decided I really wanted to, I loved the media, but I wanted to be um, in the business side of it um, mm-hmm. and advocacy. So I studied marketing and I met my husband in college and that's how I ended up in St. Louis. Talk about Todd. You, you know, I, I'm always fascinated. I, I got to know Todd later on in life. You met him as a young, strapping, uh, handsome <laughs> gentleman in college. What, what, what was it about Todd that attracted you? Oh, well, you know what? There were, there were many things. Todd was very funny. He was engaging, um, but he was incredibly nice. 
Uh, so I mentioned I was working in through college, and I usually would have two jobs, you know, one where I worked in the dorm and then one where I worked outside. Um, and, and I used to work at Haagen-Dazs because I had that professional ice cream yes. background from Friendly. So I ended up at Haagen-Dazs and worked in – and, you know, sometimes I'd work till 1 in the morning, and Todd – had a car and oftentimes the bus service stopped around one or I'd get out too late and Todd would just come and pick me up and he'd be like, no, 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 don't take the bus. Let me, let me give you a ride home. And it was, it was stuff like that. He was well liked by everyone. He was incredibly generous and he was the most generous person I've ever met. Um, and, um, you know, we, we just, um, really hit it off, enjoyed one another's company, and I think had a passion for many of the same things in life. Um, so we met in college, we dated eight years, got married, and I moved to Kansas City for a short period of time, and then to St. Louis, where I've lived almost 30 years. A, a lady from Buffalo, New York, upstate New York, a huge Bills fan, and now coming out to the Midwest, did it take a little while for you to find your uh, your Midwest legs, for you to feel like you were home? It did. It did. But I moved from uh, Buffalo, I mean, to D.C., and then D.C. to Kansas City first. And I Mm -hmm. will tell you that transition to Kansas City, having lived in D.C. for between college and working about eight years, and then moving to Kansas City, which was smaller than D.C., and I didn't keep, I didn't change my last name when I got married, and that was not uncommon in Washington, but very uncommon in Kansas City. I didn't really know that I had sort of married into a uh, a family that was well-known in Kansas City and very <laughs> established and had this very successful liquor distribution company that was founded in 1934. Um, so I th- it took me a while to understand Kansas City, um, to appreciate it. I did keep my watch on um, <laughs> set on Eastern Time for a full year. Because um, that 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock switch was really hard for me. I liked the news at 11, yes. not at 10. Um, and, you know, but when I moved to St. Louis, I will say that um, I got to St. Louis and I felt much more like I was at home. The buildings were older. It was There were more of these distinct neighborhoods. It felt a little bit more like Buffalo. I moved into a neighborhood, the Central West End, so I moved into the city of St. Louis in a place where you could walk to get your coffee. Mm-hmm to the grocery store. Those were things that were more like the neighborhood I lived in, in the District of Columbia. So when I got to St. Louis, I really had an appreciation for um, for the Midwest um, and for the um, kind of the, you know, people say that Kansas City is the first Western city and St. Louis is the last Eastern city. Yes. And I think I could agree with that. I could feel the East Eastern part of the Midwest in St. Louis, whereas I felt the Western part of the Midwest in Kansas City. They're both great places, um, but different. So I think when I got to St. Louis, it was it was easy to call it home. So you you mentioned that when you came out to Kansas City, you did not realize that Todd's family was well known, not only in Kansas City but St. Louis, Missouri, and really around the country. It's it's a uh, it's a significant business that they were operating. Did you ever envision that you would be stepping into it? Um, as a leader within it? Never. I always said I dreamt of being a sportscaster and I ended up being a liquor distributor. <laughs> right. Which is pretty so similar in some regards. Occupations. <laughs> right. 
All right. So what, when I heard you share your story, your testimony the first time, you used an expression three different times. And I wrote it down because it, it, it grabbed my attention. You said, hey, one day can bend your life. One day can bend your life. And you kept going back to this. Let's talk about one day that might bend your life. Um, take it forward from there. So you, you, I'm sure you remember the part of your, your, your share with that client where you talked a little bit about a day bending your life. I do believe one day can bend your life. I do believe we have defining moments and defining days in our lives. Sometimes we don't know they're defining when they happen, and sometimes we absolutely do. So I've had a couple defining days and a couple defining moments. But the one day that bent my life for sure was October 4th, 2010. And I can so recall that day um, and why. So I was, um, of all the odd things in the world, you know when you think you have a perfect plan? So I had the perfect plan, John. Turned out maybe it wasn't so perfect, but I had the perfect plan. I guess operative word being plan. Mm. Um, so in 2010, I decided to apply to law school at Washington University School of Law because my my younger son was going to be entering seventh grade. My older son was going to be entering 11th grade. I was going to prepare for the next kind of chapter in my life, if you will. And I had been doing advocacy and community work, and I had done work with Governor Jay Nixon's transition team. And I felt that getting a law degree would prepare me for the next thing in life. And I had an MBA, and I sort of did that thing. Hey, if I get into WashU Law School, I'm going to go. I'm going to be a full-time student. So I got into WashU. And I said, all right, I'm going to be a full-time law student. And I kind of had the perfect plan because by the time I graduate from law school, one son would be in college, one would be heading there. Once they were done, I could fully engage in this, using this law degree for advocacy, probably advocacy in the public interest sector, not the corporate sector. And Todd always said, yeah, yeah, go to law school because we don't have a lawyer. And you know what I mean? In our business, we might want one. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and the other thing was at that point in time, I had gotten to know major brands a little bit. I had sat on their advisory board and I had also, um, you know, participated in different projects and a family business really is a family business. Sometimes I say they're business families. Um, so I knew about the business, but as in the background, not in the foreground. And so Todd at that point was the only family member in his business. He was running it. And he said, we had the perfect succession plan. You know, at some point, if something ever happened, I would succeed him, but he was 50 years old and perfect health. And so I went to law school. About five weeks in on October 4th, I left my property law class. I went to the parking garage. I got in my car. I hadn't even left the parking garage when the phone rang. It was an EMT from Chicago. He asked me to identify myself. Did I know Todd Epstein? I said, yes. He asked, is he on a medication? And I said, no, he's not. He said, well, he's had a seizure. He's in the ambulance. We are taking him to Northwestern Hospital. We're not sure what's, what's going on, uh, but we think you, you need to get to Chicago as soon as possible. So I'd been sitting in my car before that phone call trying to decide would I go to the grocery store before I pick my son up from school or would I go go to the grocery store after. Instead, I went to the airport. I drove straight to the airport to catch the next flight to Chicago. 
I didn't go to a grocery store for two more weeks. <laughs> so that was a day that Todd had a seizure. I ended up in Chicago. Later that day, you know, they announced, the doctors came in and said, you know, he has a tumor. We don't think it's cancerous, um, but it needs to be removed. So October 4th was one day that bent my life. I knew it was bending my life when I got that call from the EMT. I didn't know how much it would bend it. On October 7th, Todd had surgery to remove the tumor, which the doctor thought would not be cancerous. It turned out it was cancerous. It turned out it was uh, uh, an aggressive, unusual form of brain cancer. Um, And it turned out that his prognosis was not great. Um, They thought maybe he would have three to five years to live. And all of a sudden, that great plan we had just didn't seem so great anymore. Um, And that was one day that bent my life. And as a result of that, I ended up initially uh, taking a, what I like to call, a position in the foreground at Major Brands. Mm. Initially, I became the EVP of Major Brands. Um, working side-by-side with Todd as he recovered from his first brain surgery. Um, He ended up going to NIH because uh, his type of cancer um, was something that they wanted to study, and they offered care, and they had great care for him, so he became a research patient at NIH. He had a second brain surgery um, on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving in 2010. So he had one brain surgery on October 7th, one basically at Thanksgiving. Yes. And they were able to remove the tumor. He then went on a series of uh, radiation and chemo. The doctors thought, they said, hey, he's in the best position. I think we're going to hit a home run with him. Um, So I continued kind of in the foreground, but Todd continued at Major Brands. On May May of uh, 2011, the doctors pronounced Todd cancer-free. In July of 2011, they found that the tumor had returned and he had his third brain surgery. Gosh. So in July of 2011, it was clear that Todd was not going to make it three years. Um, We'd be lucky if he made it one. And actually, he did not quite make it one. He passed away in May of 2012, two days after my younger son's birthday mm-hmm. and four days before my older son graduated from high school. So as you are getting in the car at Washington University to go pick up some tomatoes and uh, spaghetti at the store, just normal life stuff, and you get this call, and then the next year is this wild whirlwind. You're raising kids. You're beginning to partially manage a new business. You're guiding a spouse who is living and dying and trying to figure out what's going on with this cancer. What's keeping you going? And Because I, I think your answer to this helps the rest of us who are trying to deal with snow and diagnosis and struggles financially and relationally and professionally and in life. So help, help us understand what kept you going during this, this wild storm, this day, and then this, this year that bent your life. There were many things that kept me going. And when I talk about this, there's the simple answer, which was kind of the answer I told my kids. And I came in and shared with the team at Major Brands. I mean, imagine, I always said we were managing through grief. We were managing my own grief, managing my 
my children's grief and the thought of losing their father while they're supposed to just be kids, right? Yes. And then managing the grief of the 600 people who worked at Major Brands who knew Todd, who not just wondered what's going to happen to Todd, but knew if something happened to Todd, maybe something would happen to the company. Maybe they wouldn't have a job anymore. So I came in and I said the same thing to my kids. I kind of said it to myself too, John. I mean, I said, we're we're not going to let this define us. We're going to do what we always have done. And I told my younger son, you're going to get up in the morning and you're going to do your homework and you're going to go to school. I told my older son that he was going to take the SATs the next day, even though his dad was in the hospital, that you're going to go to college, that you're going to continue to live your life. And I came to Major Brands and I said, we're going to do what we've always done. We've always been the best distributor in Missouri. You're going to go out and you're going to sell and we're going to work hard. And if we're going to continue to be who we've always been. That's how we manage this. Not by losing who we are, but by being who we are. Mm. And um, it's not so unlike that driveway filled with snow in Buffalo. It snowed a lot. My dad missed one day. It might take us a little longer to get to work. It might take us a little longer to, you know, shovel that driveway. We might be tired. The journey might be different than we thought. The path, the road, the trip. But we still get there, right? Because mm. what's the alternative? As as you're going through this with 600 employees, two sons, yourself, your family, your friends, and of course Todd, you're having conversations with your husband, normal conversations about, gosh, my boys. You know, at some point, I, I, I may not be here for them. What, 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 was there a specific conversation that you remember being one when you both realized, gosh, this. This is not going to go the way our plan had been, and we're going to have to figure out a new plan. Well, I think on October 7th, when we got the news from the, you know, the doctors that it was cancerous, and, you know, you can tell a lot by someone's facial expression because the, the surgeon did not think it would be cancerous at all. So I think then we knew it was going to change, but I think as it evolved, I mean, one of the there are not many benefits in this, but a benefit was time. We didn't have to have a conversation in two days. We got to have it over a period of time. But I think we had many conversations. And there's two things that I would say that really mattered is that once the uncertainty was over, if you will, mm-hmm. once the, the, the outcome was determined, it wasn't if, it was when. The when part became more important. What do we do between now and then? And what do, and for Todd and me, it's what do you, what do you want to do? And so keeping major brands and not selling the company was very important to him. He, just because he was going to have to pass away didn't mean the legacy of an 80-year-old family business that he helped to grow and build had to go away. Todd loved the people here. The family in our family business were the people who worked at major brands. He didn't want to let that go. He asked me if I'd take that on. I did. Then he really thought about the messages he wanted to leave his kids. And so he wrote letters to be open when they turned 16. Mm. He took my younger son driving. Now, he couldn't drive, so we had someone else in the car with him. They never told me this till way later <laughs> because he always wanted to be able to teach my younger son, Brian, how to drive. But um, uh, we had a good friend, Jim White, who kind of snuck out to parking lots with Todd and Brian, and they would let Brian drive the car 
um, in parking lots so that Todd had that opportunity yes. to sit in the car and teach, because Todd loved cars, teach his son how to drive. Um, he had a quilt made of all his ties because he loved ties, neckties, and he had so many, and he he never got rid of one. So we had them from when he was young. Um, so he had two quilts made for them, so they mm. would always have that. We took his watches that he had. He loved watches, and we engraved them um, with different things for high school graduation and college graduation. Um, we had the beauty of that time, if you will. Um, but I think, and this might sound odd, John, the the thing that Todd really enjoyed doing was planning his mm. memorial service. And I will tell you, it was a great service. <laughs> it had, we had, so I'm Irish Catholic, Todd was Jewish. <laughs> right. We had um, bagpipers do Amazing Grace at a Jewish synagogue. <laughs> right. He had a soundtrack playing music throughout. I wrote the eulogy his sister gave it. He read it before. Mm. So there were so many things he couldn't control, but he could control. He had everyone show up, friends, family. So, you know, I mean, uh, this was an awful thing. There's no question. But, uh, boy, did he have a fantastic memorial service. That's one thing he could control, and it was great. And so you have to find those moments, right? You have to find those moments. You, you certainly found those moments. In some regards, they bent you, that marriage, your family, in a very positive direction, and your business. But what surprised me in hearing you speak, Sue, a, f- a few weeks ago now is is how how the sharks began swimming quickly. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I assumed in family, neighborhoods, and even in corporate America, there was a little bit of grace. And what I learned from you is, no, not always. T- talk about the stories of, and, you know, we don't have a lot of time to unpack the complexities of business today, but t- talk about the business and how quickly it was under attack as Todd got sick and, and then eventually lost the battle with cancer. So it was under attack pretty much right away, which was totally unexpected because the business was doing really well. We had a fantastic portfolio of brands. We were performing well. Um, 2012, we always said, was a very bittersweet year. Todd passed away, but the company had never done better. The people at Major Brands, the team here stood up, went out there, and fought for our company. So we had a great year in terms of the business, and a great year in terms of saying, we're going to hold on to this business. And I was committed to holding on to the business. And But yet, while Todd was sick, I would say the sharks started swimming. Jaws is my favorite movie, <laughs> but I never wanted to be in the water with the shark. Mm. I was. We had, we had competitors, very, very large distributors call up and say, we're going to take you out. Then, um, in January of 2013, about six months after Todd died, our just, our large suppliers began challenging the laws in Missouri. And they thought that they could change the laws in 14 states by putting major brands out of business. And I think they thought, because I was, you know, not a seasoned, uh, you know, uh, yes. in the liquor industry, if you will, but also, frankly, I think because they thought I was a widow, that I wouldn't stand up to them. So I always say, John, and you've heard this, that there's there are many parts to this story, but I'm telling you the liquor widow and the lawsuit part. Mm-hmm. The liquor widow was the name I was given, the nickname I was given. 
Um, and we fought battles in Jefferson City, and then we fought, fought legal battles with the largest liquor suppliers in the world, Diageo Bacardi among them. And they basically terminate our business. We were talking about defining days. Yes. There was a defining 24-hour period of time that bent my life again, but this time on the business side. It had bent personally, but now it's bent business-wise. Um, two of the largest liquor suppliers in the world terminated us without notice. Uh, it was about 40% of our spirits business. They went to our competitor uh, in the state and they basically said, sorry, we're gone. No cause. Um, they were induced to terminate. And we had to figure out, could we stay in business? And there's a defining moment, which well, I'll never forget, which was one day I was sitting there going, what do I do? I'm basically <laughs> losing this business. There's no way. you know. I mean, I'm going to fight back. I was in law school. So the minute they sued me, I countersued them. I learned that <laughs> right. much in civil procedure. By the way, right. it was the best class I ever took. Um, and uh, I didn't need to graduate. I had pretty much earned it there. Um, but uh, so I sued them back. It was unexpected. Totally. Uh, and they, you know, I would get the phone call saying, you're never going to make it. You're never going to win. Even if you win, you lose. You can't do it. They, you know, talked about how I was incompetent. They talked about how I didn't know what I was doing. They said I didn't show up at work. There were all kinds of things that were said. Um, but we just kept plugging along. And on, on April 2nd, 2013, which is, you know, not even a year since Todd has passed away, I had one of those defining moments where I had to say, am I going to fight for this company or not fight? Because I could fight and win fight and lose or not fight at all. Yes. And the concept of not fighting at all, how could I do that? How could I not fight for Todd's legacy? How could I not show my kids what's the right thing to do? You know, we in our lives, whether it's liquor business or other things, we don't sometimes we don't stand by. Sometimes we stand up even if we don't know what the outcome will be. And I always said the reason I could sleep at night is because I didn't know if I was going to win or lose, but I was, knew I was doing the right thing for Todd, for the 600 employees at Major Brands, and for my sons, that we were going to stand up. We were not going to stand by. We weren't going to be bullied into leaving the business. And so we did, and we ended up in a couple of trials. We ended up in a jury trial in the city of St. Louis, uh, and... Um, I can say that we received a substantial payment and an <laughs> apology, um, and I can say Major Brands is still in business. We had to let 100 people go during that difficult, troubling time. Um, when the trial was over, we did a couple things that I think defines who we are as a company, but also who we are as people. Yes. And it doesn't matter if where we work or what we do. This is part of what we do every day. And so we did three things. We established a new scholarship in the name of Todd for our um, all the people who work here. Whether it was for it could be for a grandkid, a spouse, a kid. It was five thousand dollars a year to pursue undergraduate, or graduate education, or community college. But it was to ensure, just like my dad got through school, that more people would get through school. We'd help out people. We also did the Family Emergency Fund, which was we set aside a philanthropic fund so that if something bad happened to the people at Major Brands, I had their back. Boy, did they have my back. Boy, did they fight alongside of me. 
we wouldn't have made it. I always said, I'll handle the court, you handle the streets. Mm. Continue to do what you do well. Um, and so we did that. But we also gave each and every um, associate, anyone who had worked at major brands during the period of time that we were affected, even if you took early retirement or even if you had to be uh, a part of a reduction in force, you received a loyalty award because you had been damaged. So everyone got a check for $3,000 the same day, even if you no longer worked at major brands, but you had been affected. Because we wouldn't be where we are today if it had not been for the great people here. And when you're damaged, and we all were in this process, we all suffered grief. We all suffered the fear. Some people, it was losing their jobs. For me, it was losing my business and the legacy. But we all suffered. But we all stood up together. And that, you know, has been a defining, um, not just moment, but will probably be the defining effort of my life was saying, hey, fight and win, yeah. not fight at all. Fight and lose. I'm going to fight. That's shoveling a driveway. You know, and I was thinking the same thing. So much of this is just you being a tree that started growing in Buffalo, New York, and you shoveled snow when it fell. Not a big deal. You just shovel. And so when snow felt, as you, when it fell, as you're going through what you were dealing with, you just started shoveling again. It's what you learn as a child, and you're acting upon it as a lady. I'm curious, though, Sue, that there's an expression in business. Sue, nothing personal, just business. I'm curious. You're looking back on this uh, experience in your life, these defining moments. You are losing your husband. Then you lose your husband. You're losing your business. You're losing your finances. You're losing your mind, I would imagine. You eventually regain the majority of it back. <sighs> have you been able to let go of the anger that at least I know I would have felt for these folks that are trying to just win in business? It's the wrong play, but that's what they're trying to do here. They're just trying to win in business. It's, e it's an easy take, they thought. Are you, are you still angry about it? Well, I think it was personal. I, I think uh, I think this was not just business. I think it was personal. I think it had to do with the fact that I was a woman. I am the only large distributor of wine, spirits, and beer in the country to be owned and operated by a woman. I think that uh, there were, it might have been handled differently if I hadn't been a woman. They might have not underestimated me. They might not have underestimated the people in major brands. They might not have been so certain that I wouldn't sue them back or fight. So I think in many respects, I think this story is a personal story, not just about me, but about business and about women in business. Mm. Uh, do I still have the anger? I think for me, I have drive. <laughs> And that's different than anger. But I hate to be underestimated. I hated when they underestimated the great people who work here and the fact that we're in Missouri. Um, so if anything, what it's done is given me a drive for the business I never thought I'd be in <laughs> and a passion for using business as a positive in a community. We really believe we build our business by building the communities we serve. So I think I've transferred that uh, defiance into a real purpose in how businesses should be run. I think they should be run in the process of values-based leadership. Yes. And there's a difference between a values-based leader, you bring your values to leadership, 
But values-based leadership, to me, is about bringing those values to how you make decisions in a company, how you lead the company. Because I think that's the opportunity here. So if I can do anything, I am proud to be at Major Brands. I'm proud that we look at the community, that we never stopped doing what we did. We were authentic in how we handled this. And that, if anything, is the lesson I learned, is that you can succeed in business, you can fight back, and you can do it honorably Hmm. with your values intact. And I think we survived because we maintain those values. It's such a lesson that applies not only in business, but certainly, Sue, as you know, in every aspect of life. When, when, when boys and girls and men and women and business owners and employees and, and retirees hear you speak, they hear you, your story, they hear this podcast, what's one thing that you hope they, they understand and they receive as it applies to their own life? What, what, what's something that you hope our listeners might hear today from you? Well, if anything, I, I, when I think about the story, I think about a Steve Jobs quote that kind of put me through this. And I, I'm going to read the quote, but I'm going to tell you what it means to me. We don't know our lives looking forward. We only know them looking backwards. He wrote, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down and has made all the difference in my life. And when I read that, I thought, that's my story. None of this makes sense. But when I look backwards, I realized I was prepared for this. I just didn't know it. So every experience we have in life, We need to make meaning out of it. And I will guarantee you every experience we have in life will become meaningful. Mm. So we are not the sum of where we exist today. We're the sum of our entire past, of all the dots. And they only connect when we look backward. They don't connect looking forward. And when I look at my story, I mean, I was in law school and I got sued. I was in five lawsuits. I mean... And I went to law school not to run a liquor distributorship. (laughs) I had an MBA. I had done public affairs work. I um, had done economics. I had used um, major brands as a company when I was studying for my MBA. Even what I learned at Friendly Ice Cream, my first job, the seven steps to customer service, about how you respect and treat people and how you serve them and understand who your customer is when they walk in the door, all those things had meaning. Shoveling the driveway had meaning. The Buffalo Bills had meaning. They never gave up. The people of Buffalo didn't give up. So, you know what? I just think sometimes we want to sum it up into one thing, but it's really, we are the sum of all of our experiences. Every experience will have meaning. We just need to understand that in the moment we're living it. Mm. So, McCollum, it has been such a joy spending some time with you today, and, and we have seven questions that we ask every guest. And uh, I want to ask you these seven questions, and uh, I, I invite you to kind of just buckle up. This is a safe pathway. Others have been guided through these same seven questions. So question number one, what is the best book that you have ever read? I'm going to say North Toward Home. I've n- n- never heard about it. Tell me about it. 
I read it in my freshman year in college, and it was Willie Morris, and he wrote it. And I haven't read it since. I only read it once because I was afraid if I read it again, it wouldn't have the same impact. But it's a story about his life in a memoir, and I thought at the time I wrote it, and the details aren't important, it just taught me mm. maybe some of the things we're talking about now is you just don't know where your life's going to go. Right. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you, Sue McCollum, with millions and millions of dollars. What would you do with that newfound wealth? Oh, I know exactly what I'd do with it. I'd set up a foundation. I would begin to solve, from a research standpoint, some of the challenges in our community that I so badly want to see solved. How do we better educate children? How do we better provide for those families that just don't have the same opportunities I had or my kids have? I know how hard it was to raise two sons who had to go through the loss of their father, but I did it with great support, and I never had the economic challenges so many people face. I had every opportunity, and it's still a challenge. Imagine when you don't know where your next meal is. Mm. Imagine if you don't have a strong, stable parent or adult force in your life. To me, I would figure out how we give more kids a chance to succeed. They need it, and I appreciate you sharing that. If your house caught fire, Sue, and all living things, all living people are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one item that you would run back into your home and grab? Mm, Gosh, just one. There's a photograph of my sons, and they are sitting on steps, and my younger son's very little, and he's looking up at his older brother, and he has... They each have their hands on the other. <laughs> and that's the photo I would save because they are, um, that's so important, that relationship. And that photograph demonstrates what it was at the beginning and yes. what I hope it, la- how it lasts throughout. That's awesome. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day overlooking a beach and have a long conversation, Sue, with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to have that long visit with? Marv Levy. <laughs> Man, I got to tell you, that is not what I was expecting your answer was going to be. Tell me. If, I so, I've never met Marv Levy. So for he, those... went, he took this team to a Super Bowl <laughs> four years in a row. He went to school at Harvard not to be a football coach. His dad said something to him. He said, I don't care what you do, just be the best at it. That's who I'd want to talk to. How did he get those players to come back year after year after year? How do you think he would no respond? You know, truly, how, how, what do you think his answer would be? I know you're a huge fan of his and the team. What, what is Marv's response to how he got those guys for four years? It's a shocking run to show up. I think he, it was his leadership, the character. You know, there's, he went back and it's like he, there was a, there's a quote. It's like, fight on men, Sir Andrew, some quote. I can't remember the whole right. thing. But he'd go back and he kind of said, yeah, you left it all out there. Now come back, figure it out, and go back out there again. But they had a strong team. There was a, there was a common you know, thread among them all. Mm-hmm. Somehow he managed to keep that thread strong. And that's what I'd want to know. How do you keep the thread strong? Um, 
when you go through such adversity? How do you keep people connected? Because in the course of all this, I remember speaking to a someone in hospice who told me that two things happen to families during illnesses like this, like Todd's. They either get closer or they break apart. Marv kept his family close. Well, Sue McCollum, we're going to shift gears into another question, but I would suggest he might be asking the exact same question of you. Sue McCollum, how did you keep your guys close? How'd you keep the boys close? How'd you keep 600 employees rowing together? So I think as much as you have to learn from uh, Mr. Levy, he would learn much more from you. But we're going to shift gears into question number five, which is what is the best advice you have ever received? So the best advice I ever received came from probably my second boss and my first woman boss. And I had gone out and done something and I realized I had made a mistake. And it wasn't like a big mistake. And and she was like, you know, Sue, she said, don't beat yourself up. Others will do that. Hmm. Never do that to yourself. It's pretty strong advice when you go back because that's what keeps us from doing the next thing, right? We're afraid, you know, okay, I made a mistake. What am I going to do about it? And she was like, I don't want you beating yourself up over that. Just go on, you know, kind of pick yourself up, move on to the next thing. And I've shared that with my own kids. I've shared it with many people. Great advice. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Take more risks. Hmm. Uh, Be a badass. I waited until I was 50 to be a badass. Be it sooner. Perfect. And badass Suba column. it has been said that all great people, and I'm speaking to one right now, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Well, that's a hard question. <laughs> right. So, um... It could be a run-on. Uh... I would say sum up our lives, my life. Your life. I tried hard. Sue McCollum, you not only tried hard, you, uh, you've lived into the perfect plan, and it has led you perfectly to where you are today in Buffalo and Kansas City and D.C. and St. Louis. And John O'Leary and his listeners are proud to spend a little bit of time with you today. Well, thank you so much. What wonderful questions, what a wonderful opportunity that you provide others to hear stories, because it's stories that move us. Well, your story, Sue, has certainly moved me. It's moved us, and I'm, I'm so grateful for this time. My friends, that was Sue McCollum. This is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Go Bills and live inspired.